Isn't she a breath of fresh air? I love hearing you talk. (laughs) Please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 50, 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Romans eight eighteen to 30. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. Before we pray, Courtney mentioned the new members class. I wanted to add one thing about that. If you are a covenant student, in our denomination there is a provision called associate membership, which allows you to maintain your ties back home, but also be connected uh, under the authority and tethered by vow also to the congregation you're with during college. This is meant for transient people, military people, covenant uh, college people, college people. So if you're a covenant student and you're interested in membership, that provision 
is available to you. We'd love for you to come. Also, some people have scheduling problems where they can't come on Friday night, but they can come on Saturday or they have to get there late on Friday or something like that. If you can come to any part of it, we would love for you to come. So don't, don't worry if you have to miss some part. It'll be from 6 to 9 on Friday the 25th and from 9 to 12 on Saturday the 26th. So we'd love to have you. Thank you, and let's pray. <coughs> It's an awfully reassuring kindness from you that we have passages like these and we have passages of prayers saying, yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. Because we know what that feels like to feel like we're not enough in ourselves to feel a great and spreading displeasure with ourselves, to feel agitated and not knowing why, to feel like we have resentments towards people who've injured us. We have people who are resentful toward us, and we don't know what to do. We have uncertainties and fears and thoughts and feelings we don't want. And that we can come and say, yet... I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. Will you think of us today and show us that you're thinking of us not merely in some abstract way, but by making these words, even from somebody like me, nutritious, personalized, and seemingly prescribed for the lifting of heads, the strengthening of knees, for the breaking of the bars of our yoke so that we might be enabled to walk with our heads held high. Oh, come, Lord Jesus Christ. Make us alive with these words. Say to the nothingness in us, be created anew. We welcome you and we need you. Will you think of us and speak to us even now? Amen. You've undoubtedly had the experience of obtrusive thoughts. Thoughts that bombard you without welcome, without an evite. They just run into your house, they don't knock on the door, and they make their presence inescapable. They insinuate things. They come at very convenient times, like when you're trying to sleep or in the middle of the night or when you need to be doing something else. It can come as a kind of fear about your job or your kids or that mole on your arm. These things jump into our lives and and we know what that's like, I think, these thoughts that come to us. And, and before you know it, usually unawares, you can have been meditating for quite some time. Like a dog with a bone gnawing on these thoughts, working out their implications, thinking, yeah, if this happens, what's going to happen down the road? And then all of a sudden you're 
You're 30 years out. Your kids hate you. You're desolate. You're poor. You only have one friend, and they don't even like you that much. Or you may have somebody that you're holding a sense of injury against, or someone who doesn't like you, and you find yourself just instinctively, no one has to tell you, here, tell you what do. In the middle of your day, at random times, just start thinking about this person who has injured you, and just only think about that all the time. No one has to tell you to do that. It just comes naturally, instinctively. We're all meditators at heart. So you can start thinking about what someone has done to you and why they've done it and, and the ways that you'd like to see them slip on some ice and hit their head on something and, or why or how you could make someone who's angry with you not angry with you. You meditate on these things. They pop in your head and you, you mull them over. You work out the implications. You use your imagination. You, you get further down the road. It occupies your time. And you can do it and not even know you're doing it. Surely at least three people have had this happen. Well, as a reminder of what we're doing this little period of time before Lent, this seven more weeks after today, I think, we are taking passages of Scripture and we're going to try to meditate on them as a congregation for a week at a time. What we're doing when we do this is we are making a plan for our thoughts. We're deciding that whatever else comes into our head, we're going to make sure that God comes into our head. That his intentions, his perspective, his power, that his words that are presently upholding the whole world, even if your science teacher doesn't think so, and at Covenant they probably do think so, hopefully they think so, that the world is being upheld by this word and you can have it simmer in you. You can steep in it and let it flavor all your thoughts. And so that's what we're doing is we're, on Fridays, in the Rock Creek response, if you're not signed up for that, let, let us know. On Fridays, we're letting you know what the passage is. Last week it was Psalm 23. This week is Genesis 15, verses 15 through 21. I'm sorry, Genesis 50. Sorry. 15 to 21. And you'll have two days before the sermon to be mulling it over, and then you'll have five days after the sermon till the next Friday to keep mulling it over. And we're hoping that what happens here is that you're making a plan for your thoughts because most of our thoughts just happen to us. We let them happen to us. And we don't have a good way to fight against them. Martin Luther has famously said, or it has been famously ascribed to Martin Luther because when you get as famous as he is, then you and Abraham Lincoln and Augustine and Charles Spurgeon like said all the good things there were to say. So you don't know if he actually said these things unless you can find them in his writings. But he apparently and allegedly said, you can't do anything at all about birds flying overhead. You can't do anything about a bird landing on your head. But you sure can keep a bird from building a nest in your head or on your head. In your head would be even more traumatic. (laughs) You can keep a bird from building a nest on your head. 
And he's using a metaphor, you literate people, of thoughts. Because he knew about unwanted thoughts. Thoughts of accusation. Thoughts of despair. Christ is angry with me. Christ has left me. Maybe this isn't true. Thoughts of injury, of wanting to pay people back or not being able to get off the hook of your anger with them. Fear about the future. Fear about your body. Fear about your children. These things, they crowd in, come in uninvited. And we're trying to figure out who gets to build a nest in our heads, in our minds. What things do we want to to populate our minds with? Do we want it to be things like, you could be driving a Kia, Kia of Chattanooga. Oh, yes, you could. Now, that might have just ruined the day for some of you. But you know, without a guard, you get these things in your head. You listen to the radio, and then for the rest of the week, you're stuck singing a jingle about a car dealer in Chattanooga. It's cultivating your covetousness for Kias. That is not an anti-Kia announcement. It's just saying how easy stuff gets stuck in our heads. And so I'm urging you, make a plan for what you think. And that's what we're doing with these scriptures, with these meditations together on these passages. I also want to remind you, this isn't just for people with, who are out of college and who are uh, older than 25. This is for kids, for teenagers, middle schoolers, college students, all of you. Do you know that Christian Smith, as a sociologist, wrote a book, I think called Soul Searching, a while back, and, and he noted that there are a couple of huge factors in what helped determine, at least from a sociological standpoint, God can do whatever how he wants, these patterns of what determines where kids hang on to their faith or not. And they, they live out their faith. Their faith becomes a living, vital reality in their lives. And the, the one irreplaceable one, he says, is parents. Parents who believe these things and live them out. But the second, he says, is that all these kids who hung on to their faith in college and throughout adulthood, is they started a devotional life. Meditation on scripture, memorization of scripture, reading scripture when they were young. And of course that makes sense. I know few people who hang out in the Bible all the time who have no faith. I know lots of people who have no faith who spend no time in the Bible. Those aren't related, but it just seems like they could be. There are lots of people who discount the Bible but do not read the Bible. Because the Bible can read us. And that's what's so scary about it. And I know from good experience, like you do, that when you're not reading the Bible, you know what the worst thing to do is? The worst thing you could imagine is reading the Bible. Everything seems better than reading the Bible when you're not in the Bible. A lot of times. For a lot of kinds of folks and a lot of kinds of conditions we find ourselves in. Like, oh, I don't want to do that. You've got an enemy who would like to keep you away and it lives within you and there's one outside you and there's an accuser. So we're trying for all of us. You can do this as families. You can do this as individuals and friends. 
We're trying to meditate on a passage, making a plan for our thoughts, deciding in advance who gets to build a nest on our heads. And we're hoping it will be not jingles from advertisers and not unwanted thoughts from the enemy or even from our own psyche, but but God's words, clarifying words. That we might let ourselves, like a tea bag, steep in these scriptures and be flavored, be changed, be altered. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has said, when asked, why do you meditate? He says, I meditate on scripture because I am a Christian. And then he dropped the mic and he walked off. Because he thought, how else would someone who's been called to life by God's word, who's submitted themselves to God's word, how else would they live except by by feasting on it and letting it alter and let it be the spectacles through which they start to see everything. Spectacles, that's the way people talk now, right? Glasses, through which we see everything that's happening. My wife told me this week that seven days wasn't enough on the Psalm 23. And I said, good. That was awesome. That was so encouraging to me. Someone else at Lula Lake told me the same thing afterwards. They're like, I've been thinking about this all week, and that's not bad news to me. That's fantastic news. I think that's what it's like. That's what Augustine said, again, probably, that the scriptures are so shallow that a child can play in them, and yet so deep that an elephant can bathe in them, or you know, something like that. Augustine, or, or some guy named Jimmy from ancient Rome, but they, he didn't, didn't fare well in history. But that's the idea, that a lot of these passages, hopefully, as you mull over them, they'll start to affect how you see, they'll they'll populate the words of your prayers and the notions that you pray, and they'll start to affect the, the risks that you take and the obediences you offer and the ways you receive from God. That's what our hope is, and we're making a plan for our thoughts, deciding in advance who gets to build a nest in our heads. And so today we've picked... This passage from Genesis that you hopefully know the story of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph is the 11th of 12 sons from Jacob. And Jacob is the grandson of a dude named Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know that lot. And this story all happens from Genesis 37 to Genesis chapter 50, if you ever want to look it up. And if you get a children's storybook Bible, you can read it in probably like two pages. But what's happened here is something interesting. And I've picked this passage, like a lot of these passages will pick, because these passages are, are passages like if we were a forensic scientist, you could like, you know, pull a hair, and like the DNA of the whole person is in that hair, and like the DNA of the whole scriptures is in this passage. There's a whole lot going on here that stands for a whole lot that God's up to in the whole Bible. And a lot of these passages we'll pick, hopefully we'll have that kind of characteristic. And, and what you have here is this story of a, of a boy named Joseph. He was 17 years old. He's a remarkably handsome guy. If you need trouble with imagination, just, you know. 
And well-dressed, ornamented robe again, fashionable. He was the favorite son of his very aged father. And as always, this really worked out well with his brothers. And he was a tattletale. He reported bad things about his brothers, which even more endeared them to him. And he was a man to whom God gave dreams. And uh, he didn't like to keep these to himself. They were awesome dreams, though. How could he? So, you know, at the beginning of the story, he has this dream. And he tells his brothers about it. You wouldn't believe it, guys. I had this dream. And like, I had so many followers on Instagram. And y'all were like singing songs to me and bowing down and calling me king. It was awesome. Don't y'all think that's awesome? And their carotid arteries burst out of their necks and they started plotting sinister things. They did what has happened in the Bible and what has leapt off the pages of Genesis into our world. They were jealous and they were therefore murderous. They were wanting to put an end to this dreamer. And so they decide, well... We'll kill him, nah. We won't kill him, we'll just, we'll sell him. So they sell him into slavery. We'll tell our dad, dear old dad, and they break his heart saying, your son's gone. And they really do break his heart. He's sold to Potiphar, who's a captain in Pharaoh's army in Egypt. And we're told that though his life has been severely disrupted and he's been ripped apart from his family and from his father who loves him so, he found favor in Pharaoh's household, uh, Potiphar's household, and so he's ruling over all things well. But you know, he's a well, he's a stunning guy. And Potiphar's wife is coming on to him. She's getting fresh. She makes passes at him. He tries to avoid it. Get behind me, Satan, he says. But She doesn't like that. And then, one day, she tries to seduce him. He runs out, but she keeps his coat. So she's got the evidence. He's shown her up. So she falsely accuses him. And he gets thrown in jail. The favor of God. Ripped away from his family. Sold into slavery. Falsely accused. Languishing in jail. He has other dreams. Dreams he thought were going to get him out, but he gets forgotten again. So there's that. And then Pharaoh starts having these troubling dreams. Joseph interprets them. He's so impressed to learn from his dreams. One, that Joseph has some kind of pipeline to God. God reveals things to him. And two, they've got a plan forward when there's going to be all these years of fat and plenty. And then the spigots of heaven are going to be turned off. And the dust bowl days are coming. And so Joseph has a plan. He's number two in the country now, running things. And his brothers are sent from Canaan because they ain't got no food. They're sent to the Egyptian version of the Ingles to get grain and tortillas and such. And when they come, after some gamesmanship, 
Joseph reveals himself after a back and forth kind of thing. And he tells these brothers who are terrified to realize that their brother, who they thought was dead and at least put away and discarded and they'd never meet him again, he's like the king of Egypt almost. And he says, don't hate yourselves, guys. Don't be mad at yourselves. Because God sent me here. God sent me here. God sent me here for the saving of many lives. He does good to them. He has this perspective, you see, that underneath their intentions, which were horrid, and underneath all these circumstances, which were nasty and unwanted, that God was up to something that wasn't exactly clear to anyone at the time. In his heart, a man makes his plans, but the Lord determines his steps. God works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will, said the Apostle Paul. Working all things for good. And here, 17 years later, after he's been good to his brothers and he set up his father and his brothers, his daddy dies. And now they're freaked out again. They know Joseph wants to please his daddy. Maybe he's just been nice to us these 17 years because daddy was around. And so they make up a story more than likely. Uh, Joseph, they come back. Um, Say, you know the last words of our father? He said, now you tell Joseph. Please tell that dear boy. Be sweet to these brothers. They don't know nothing. Don't clobber them. Be sweet to them. And Joseph hears them and he, we're told he weeps. They so badly misunderstood him, perhaps. We don't know what's behind the tears, but for 17 years he's shown no vindictiveness. He's shown no resentments. He's given them kindness in return for their awfulness because he saw another reality at work than just the one with his eyes. You know that song, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind A frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Joseph has tasted, you have tasted, frowning providence. Things not working the way you thought they should. Promises not being revealed. Things not coming in timely ways. Harshness coming at you. Like mosquitoes. It feels frowny. But Joseph has seen that there is a hidden hand that's working for the reversal of the curse that's infecting the world. And so the only things, as we tell you this story, and you're going to be meditating on it this week, I want you to think of this story as a, as a picture of what God's actually up to in the whole universe and certainly what he's up to in the book of Genesis. Curse reversal. He is doing what he always does. See, here's how curse reversal works for God. He uses a little something called election. We think of election as us getting to choose who rules us. In the Bible, election is God choosing who he's going to use to broadcast and bring about his goodness to the world. 
And so God is always working out the reversal of the curse, this curse where people said, I want to give myself to the big me project. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to be ruled by my own feelings, by my own thoughts. I don't care about what God wants. I don't want to listen to him. I'm sure he's not good. We see the first action is after a football game at Thanksgiving, a battle ensues and Cain kills Abel. The first Thanksgiving gathering. Brother murder. And it goes from bad to worse till God scatters everybody at Babel. And you wonder, is that it? God being grievously heartbroken that he's made people who are wicked and violent and looking after themselves, the strong, oppressing the weak and beating up and not taking care of. And he picks a man, Abraham. He, he selects him. He elects him. And he's already on Medicaid. And he knows and we know and everybody knows he's got no business or no opportunity or possibility of having a kid at this age. And yet he does. That kid was Isaac. That kid after him was Jacob. And Jacob had these 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the whole Bible... Look at the Bible project sometime. Matt and Lisa will tell you about it. The whole Bible, the whole Old Testament especially, is about this family. You know there were other families, right? But the Bible's about this family. This elected family. Not because God hated all the other families, but because he loved all the other families, so he picked this family. And he said, I'm going to make my largesse, my generosity, my world-healing intentions known to all the rest of the world who's opposed to me through you guys, through Abraham. I'm going to do so much good to you so that all that good can trickle out through the world. Well, Joseph is showing that to be the case. It looks like the promises are gone it looks like the, that Abraham's family is going to starve out. And God says, through Joseph, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. The saving of many lives as you are seeing now. That God picks this family. There's all kinds of evil. He reverses the evil so that a lot of people can be saved, rescued, able to live. When God wants to reverse the awfulness, the cataclysmic destruction of the fall, he uses election. He always picks people, Abraham, Moses, King David, the apostles, Jesus, who said, you didn't choose me, I chose you to go and bear fruit. See, God is interested in the saving of lives where God is not death rules. Sickness, despair, conflict, those things rule. And Joseph's reminding us what they intended for evil, God intends for good. 
And so you know what he does, though? He realizes he's, he's meant to be a representative of God. That's what all elect people are. That's what you're meant to be. He's meant to act like God. In his forgiveness, and his love, and his generosity, in pointing people to the one who has saved him. But you know how he's able to act like God? By refusing to be God. So his brothers come to him having done the most atrocious things. And he says, am I in the place of God? I refuse to judge you. I refuse to pay you back. So don't be afraid. And in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to take care of your kids and their kids, which sounds exactly like the kind of thing God says. And he spoke kindly to them. And he reassured them. That also sounds like the kind of thing that God does throughout the scriptures. And he was able to do this to these brothers who were living in a great deal of fear because, you know, the guilty live in dreadful uncertainty. They're afraid of stuff. They don't know what's going to happen to them. They need someone strong to pronounce forgiveness. They need someone strong to absolve them, give them clemency, to expunge their record. And Joseph's saying, the only thing I can do is forgive, and I certainly will not judge. God reverses the curse through election and through this kind of forgiveness by people who are acting like God by refusing to act as if they were God. And of course, Paul picks this up in Romans 8 and says, yeah, your life's going to be a Joseph life. He doesn't use Joseph's name, but it's going to be a groaning life. Because you have, as Christians, you have this remarkable hope awaiting you of all things being not so stinky anymore. Not so disappointing and disheartening anymore that you have an opportunity to see everything awful that's happened being unawfulfied. Even the poisons and the destructions of your life are going to be thrown into the, the stew of, of God. As he stirs them up, they get converted into this savory and scrumptious meal. He says, but because you know that's coming, it makes it harder now. You've got the first fruits of the Spirit, which makes you groan more. You're like a pregnant lady. You know some good's happening, but it don't feel good right now. Feels nauseous. It's hard to move. It's hard to get comfortable. It's hard to feel yourself. We are a people who can make plans for our thoughts, deciding in advance who gets to build a nest. And what we can do is we can join Joseph in realizing that just like in his life, this little microcosm of the life of Israel, this little microcosm of the life of our Savior, who was himself sold into slavery. He was abandoned by his brothers. He was falsely accused. And he saw heartbroken. Disciples running off, thinking it's all over. But Caiaphas, wasn't it? Said it's better for one man to die 
for all the people than for all the people to die. And even then, God was putting in the mouth of him who would destroy our Savior the words of Joseph, what they intend for evil, God will intend for good, that maybe this one man can die and it can bring healing for all the other people. Simone Veyes said, when you read a newspaper, which is a thing that used to exist, when you read a book, if you read it upside down, it just looks like a bunch of squiggles and odd characters. It's unintelligible. It's a jumble. When you turn it right side up, suddenly it's words and sentences and paragraphs and its meaning becomes clear. She says, when we go through suffering, when we go through hardship, when we go through injury, and we do not involve God in the interpretation of it, it's like reading a book upside down. It's just squiggles and lines. But when we bring God into the picture, the God who's working out everything according to his own intention, the God who's going to pull in every awful thing that you hate about your life right now and is somehow going to work good out of it. How? I don't know. Is it all going to be working out as fast as it did for Joseph? I doubt it. But some of it might. But our hope is long. And who hopes for what he already has? But our hope is also certain that there is no harm that comes to you and there is no trouble that comes to you. There's nothing that comes to you who are in Christ that means that God has abandoned you. That means that it's the final thing because God has promised that whatever evil has come into your life, he's going to convert it to some unimaginable good. Peter Reichman at our other congregation is a potter, I guess, an artist learning to be a potter. In his senior project, I went to see it in his SIP. And I loved it. It was these place settings. Broken plates that he made. Well, plates that he made and broke, and then he, he put them back together. And they had scars on them. They had evidences of the fractures that had existed, but yet they were whole and useful and beautiful. And he was trying to show us a little picture for people who sit down to eat. That this mighty, useful plate and cup that bears their nourishment had once been in a bunch of different pieces. But in the hands of a master with the gorilla glue of grace had reassembled it to be what it was meant to be. Your master, likewise, will take all the evil, all the things that blow you to bits, and with the gorilla glue of his grace, is going to put your life back together. I hope it's tomorrow. I hope you get big tastes of it this week. I guarantee you, it will be unimaginably put back together eventually. And this is our hope from a Savior who knows what it's about to have been subject to great evil and to have worked great redemption on the other side of it. Amen.